Chambers of Commerce are a close cousin to the nonprofit industry, especially with regard to their 501c6 status with the IRS. And while they don't have to lean so hard into individual donors, they do have to diversify their revenue streams, and they ha- they too have had their fair share of revenue crisis over this last several months. Today, I talk with the Little Rock Regional Chamber of Commerce on this week's episode. Hello and welcome to Small Shop Fundraising, a podcast dedicated to small to medium-sized nonprofits and the topics and issues facing them today. We have James Reddish on our show today. James is the Executive Vice President at the Regional Little Rock Chamber in Little Rock, Arkansas. But before he was in Little Rock, he had a short stint in Louisville, Kentucky, and that's how we know each other. James, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Liz, for having me at. I look fondly back on my uh, my time in Louisville. I was there for two years of graduate school and then five years with the chamber there before we relocated to Chicago first and then ultimately about two and a half years ago here to Little Rock. Yeah, and even though you were in Louisville for quite some time, we know each other more specifically. A little-known program here in Louisville called mm-hmm. Leadership Louisville. A little shout-out to them as they are still making connections even, well, we won't go into how many years ago it was, but they're still connecting right. young leaders and helping us develop. So let's dive in to, to James Reddish. Yeah. Before we really get into chamber work and how it can impact or and help support nonprofits. Can you tell us a little bit about your leadership journey and how you ended up in Little Rock as an executive level leader? Sure. So, um, so I was born and raised in the sort of DC metro area of Baltimore, Northern Virginia, and then just North of Philly for a little while. Ultimately studied sports management as an undergraduate um, at James Madison and then went to University of Louisville, which is what took us um, to Louisville. Uh, for a graduate degree in sports management. Got some experience and was actually working at the KFC Young Center upon graduation. And, you know, for, for a number of reasons, which I won't go into right now, that, that wasn't the personal path from a career standpoint or from a lifestyle standpoint that I, I wanted to pursue at that point. I was very blessed to be able to sort of stumble into the uh, chamber there in Louisville, Greater Louisville, Inc., um, and started an entry-level economic development position, which through some lots of changes, this is an interesting leadership um, and nonprofit story, just in terms of, of you know how fragile these nonprofits can be. GLI went through some tough times there and, and through some layoffs and, and some other folks leaving. Ended up being vice president of economic and workforce development there for a number of years before we left. Loved that work, got a chance to be a part of the, the leadership Louisville program there, both through Ignite and through the Bingham Fellows program. And then my wife, who was working at Louisville Slugger at that time, relocated to Chicago as part of the sale of uh, Louisville Slugger to the Wilson Sporting Goods brand. So we spent some time in Chicago, about three years, and, and I was a, a consultant with an organization called the Council for Adult Experiential Learning there. Um, did workforce and economic development consulting across the country and ultimately got a little bit restless with the, with the flights and jumping all across the country and not feeling that sense of ownership. And so began at that point really looking for a, another chamber to get back to, another economic development organization. Looked all across the country and had a number of different opportunities, but ultimately this opportunity here in Little Rock was attractive to me, mostly because it was going to provide me an opportunity to really get to know the business better. So at GLI, even though I was at a chamber, 
I was on what I what I laughingly call the the spending side of the shop, right? So we didn't necessarily bring in in revenue or dues. We had a program of work where we spent money, we were attracting new businesses, and and so I never quite understood how the actual nonprofit, the business, ran. In my role here in in Little Rock, I now have the opportunity to backfill essentially for the COO who left. So here I've I've had to learn the business side of how this organization works. And that's really, to me, sort of rounded out. I'm still doing a lot with economic development and workforce development, but one of the things that was attractive about this position and that I've, I've really loved since, uh, since getting here two and a half years ago is learning about membership models and learning about revenue and, and you know, how our programming works and our communications and can we own our own building. It's not a part of the job I love, but I'm the landlord for our building, right? So there's a lot of the operation side from a business and a nonprofit standpoint that I've really had a chance to be immersed in these last couple of years. And it's given me a totally different perspective as I think back on my time in Louisville and what I didn't know back then. So it sounds like you've got, you've really rounded out your experience there at the chamber. You called it a regional chamber. I wonder, mm-hmm. not knowing much about chambers and how they're set yeah. up, is there a difference? What is a regional yeah, chamber? So, what that means? So there is, and, and GLI would have been a regional chamber okay. um, that I was at in, in Louisville. Um, I would say there's sort of four levels of chambers of commerce that, that people are, are probably familiar with. The one that, that people are most familiar with probably is the U.S. Chamber. That's at a national level. Most of the Fortune 100 companies are, are part of that. And they're primarily a lobbying organization. There are then state chambers of commerce. So the Arkansas Chamber of Commerce would be the one here in Arkansas. And similarly, because they represent the whole state, they are often, state chambers are often drivers of public policy change um, and lobbying and, and trying to create a better environment for the entire state. Obviously, they can't get too focused on any one sort of local issue, but they have a, a tremendous power representing some of the largest businesses in the state um, in terms of being able to work with the governor and the legislature on policy that's right for our state. I'll jump for a I'll come back to regional, but the local chambers are, are sort of, as the name would imply, the closest to the ground, sort of your main street chamber, much smaller and much more focused on hyper-local issues, right? So they'll often do main street festivals and parades and helping local businesses connect and retail and, and that sort of stuff. The regional chamber sort of exists in that sweet spot between the local and the state. So we cover, we, we say we cover a 60 mile range, which, which includes about 12 counties here. We are big enough in a metropolitan region that our chamber has the resources to be able to do some of the things like the state chamber would do in terms of lobbying and certainly larger infrastructure projects projects and public policy to make our region more competitive. But we also have that sort of local chamber member to member benefit component. And we know our community and can focus on some of those local issues that, that obviously the state chamber can't. So, you know, a regional chamber and any any metropolitan area, I would say probably the top 100 or 150, you know, largest metros in, in the country um, probably have regional organizations. And so there's always this sort of tension between are you so big that you don't know each one of your members and each one of your customers? But then are you big enough that you're actually making some of that big change to justify the larger investments that you're getting from some of your, from some of your major corporate companies? So that's, that's sort of where a regional chamber lives. And, and regional chambers often have something that state chambers and, and local chambers don't have, which is economic development efforts. So working to attract new business, expand existing business, helping entrepreneurs start business and, and grow. We are sort of a, well, we can talk more about the revenue model if that would be helpful. 
um, from a nonprofit standpoint, but but we've got a number of different areas and about a third of our budget comes from economic development funds. So these are about 100 businesses who put in money to help grow the regional economy. It's about a third our membership um, and this is $400 at a time, 2,000 members trying to you know, make their cash registers ring. Um, and they want some of that networking and some of that business-to-business connection. And then the other third sort of comes from a combination of our programming. Um, so events that we do, uh, you know, ticketed events, um, and then other sort of miscellaneous. We actually run the leadership program. It's nothing like um, Leadership Louisville, but we run the leadership program for this region out of our chamber, and that, that accounts for another portion of that revenue. You have different streams of revenue, and none of them really sound like your typical philanthropy gift. It sounds more like yeah. potentially sponsorship gifts within that event and leadership program, which is, you know, as you know, a little different than your typical just flat out donation. People are expecting yep, something absolutely. back from that, that return on investment. Absolutely. So, so my boss, my boss jokingly says we're a nonprofit one day a year um, mm-hmm. and that's tax day. Every other day of the year we're trying to, as a, as a normal free market business would offer products and services that people will pay for um, in that sort of direct non-philanthropic way. Now, interestingly, most chambers have, many chambers have a C3 associated with it. Um, and we do as well, Little Rock Regional Chamber Foundation. And different chambers use them in different ways. I would say, you know, maybe half of the chamber, they're just sort of dormant, right? It's a, it's a legal entity, but not really operational. About a quarter of the chambers really utilize it from a philanthropic standpoint. So they they will set a goal to raise two, three, four million dollars, put it in that foundation, and then use that for sort of a single issue or a couple issues and deploy those funds towards that. Um, That's not how we use it. We use it in what I would say is the third category, which is some of the businesses who who invest in the work that we do, um, do so through their foundations or through um, their philanthropy. And so they have to give to a C3, they can't give to a C6 or chamber is a C6, which um, by virtue of that we do some lobbying. Um, And so the C3 then is sort of what they call a dedicated foundation and as part of the legal entity dollars that go in that foundation foundation basically has one mission and customer and that's our chamber and it's something that we've looked at from from the foundation standpoint is do we want to expand it do more of that sort of giving but definitely does not use language like donation or philanthropy because all of the people who give us money are looking for that sort of immediate and somewhat more tangible ROI. So I bought a ticket, I get to go to an event. I gave a membership. I'd like to see emails and, and other benefit coming back to me. And then I'll make a choice about renewing that membership next year. Right. Um, so it's a, it's definitely interesting because similar to nonprofits, particularly in tougher economic times where we're all in right now, the chamber investment for most of these businesses is still discretionary. So not dissimilar from the way that a normal nonprofit would be considered philanthropy or charity or discretionary giving. We are similarly on that sort of nice to have, but not necessarily critical to business operations. Uh Um, And so interestingly, in, in probably tighter economic times, we, we start to look more like a, a traditional nonprofit than we actually are in terms of in terms of our investors and, and the businesses as they're as they're tightening their belts. In other words, you know, we, we stand the risk of being one of the things that they cut because right. they don't have the budget for it. 
Absolutely. And before we move on, I want to make sure our listeners know that because most chambers are C6 registered as C6 with the IRS, mm-hmm. chambers and other C6 organizations yeah. were not a part of the PPP disbursements. Yeah. And so yeah, um, that's right. nothing that you could do about it, obviously, but, but certainly right. a very difficult pill to swallow. Well, Exactly. And I mean, that's where, right, that's where the, the U.S. Chamber came into play and they were lobbying Congress at each step and are still lobbying Congress as we sit here on down the barrel of, of is there going to be a fifth, you know, sort of stimulus package out of Congress. Um, at each previous one, there was lobbying to get C6s included. I mean, this may be urban legend, but, you know, the, the what we heard at the very beginning was C6s were included until somebody looked on paper and realized that the NFL was a C6, technically. And so I think there was some immediate blowback, and then there's no uh, hiding that the U.S. Chamber at the national level is, a, is can be a fairly partisan organization. Um, and so I think some of that came in as well. But the result was that we weren't eligible for the PVP. We were lucky, Arkansas and, and several other states as well, have what's called a shared work program. And so we were able to take advantage of that and essentially reduce staff down to 60% time. We were, so we paid 60% of their salary. Um, and then they were able to access both state, a portion of state unemployment, so 40% of state unemployment, but then also the federal unemployment benefit of $600 a week. And so what we've been able to do is we haven't had to furlough or cut any staff, but we've reduced their time and been able to use some of the other public assistance that's available to help sort of blunt the the revenue loss that we're feeling right now and sort of offset that with some some savings from an expense side. But um, to be sure, there, there are chambers all across the country, and particularly some of the smaller ones, for whom not being able to, to participate in the PPP has really hurt them. Right. There's a great example right. here in Kentucky, in Oldham County, the vice president yeah. for their chamber was had to be let go due to budget cut. Well, one of the reasons was not being able to participate in the, in that PPP, that program uh, was is definitely something that people have been leaning on to get through these lean times. Let's look back a little bit before the pandemic and before these sure. budget crunches that we all have found ourselves in. Paint us a picture of what your chamber looked like, what your economic development looked like, the job market, your membership, what your trajectory was, and how how and then tell us about how the pandemic changed that dramatically for for Arkansas. Prior to, you know, I would say probably February and certainly mid-March of this year, you know, we were doing very well. I mean, like most parts of the country, unemployment here was 3% basically. And from a chamber standpoint, we were doing well financially, you know, holding events that people were showing up to and, and being able to sell the tickets that we needed to sell. And I've always really taken to heart that that our organization, and by that I mean Chambers of Commerce generally, are in need of, of some measure of modernization, right? The first chamber in the U.S. was, was founded in part by Alexander Hamilton in New York. So we're an old model. Chambers of Commerce have been around for a very long time. And the majority of that time, the vast majority of that time, was spent in an era before social media and before connectivity. And so you needed to go to the Chamber of Commerce to get a lot of people in one room. Well, you don't need that anymore, right? I mean, Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and technology has, has changed that. So we've been changing with that as well. And, and we have been rolling out a new suite of programs um, a year and a half ago and changing up some of the value proposition that, that we can offer. We've 
been working very closely, probably our larger strategic initiative has been with the public school system and, and transforming the public school system, not dissimilar to actually some work that I did when I was in Louisville and, and JCPS there. So, you know, we were sort of uh, rocking and rolling when everything shuttered in, for, for Arkansas, I'll never forget this because our last major public school convening this big group that we had pulled together met on the 12th of March and on the 13th of March the governor closed schools here in central Arkansas for what we later found out would be the rest of the school year and basically the next week then we closed our offices and, and sent everybody home we haven't had an in-person event since then we've reopened the doors um, to our office and people are people have been able to come back in we put lots of procedures in place to make it as safe as possible but you know, a big portion of what we did was was bring people together and, and host events and give people opportunity to connect. And that, you know, sort of can't happen in the world in which we live. And so actually, we, we just had a recent experience uh, a couple of weeks ago where Arkansas was sort of at, a, at what now, as we look back, was a really low point, sort of a valley point. And, and I think there was great hope in our community that this was getting behind us and, and um New York was starting to come down, the coasts were starting to come down in terms of their numbers. And so we started planning for another event. We planned not a 300 people in a ballroom like we normally do, but we, we were going to have seven different restaurants, 30 people at each one, sort of a watch party. We would network it all and do a Zoom meeting. Uh, people were excited about it. And then all of a sudden the numbers spiked and there was this whiplash effect. I think we ended up selling six tickets before I ultimately postponed it again. Um, and we, we ended up actually doing a, a poll on Facebook and like 95% of the people said would not feel comfortable. And so it was just this, this moment of, man, our business model is going to change here for the rest of the year. Um, we, we stopped in the early days. We had to change how we were selling memberships because many of our, our members are small businesses or nonprofits, all of whom were struggling at the same time. And so we were trying to be respectful both in renewals and new member sales of small businesses and how they were feeling and faring. And so it changed. Now, one of the things that became clear to me in this, um, and some of our local chambers are struggling with this, I had never really paid that much attention to the ratio of our revenue coming from membership dues versus events. Um, well, it turns out we were normally about three quarters of our Chamber revenue was from membership and about a quarter was from events. I've got a local chamber and colleagues where they're 60% from events and 40% from renewals. So you can see what happens, right? Yeah. When, you, when you have to go to literally zero on one, if you're out of whack, then 40% renewals can't pay the bills. Yeah, you get upside down um, and real so fast. We, yeah, you get completely upside down. And so our renewals are down, don't, don't get me wrong, like, you know, we're, we're probably down 15 to 20%, but there's enough of that to start with that even as we come down and we've been able to match that from an expense side. Um, so I think what this has, has shown from a pure sort of nonprofit business model standpoint, and, and I know that there are plenty of traditional nonprofits or, or charities for whom single event or two events a year are their major uh, fundraising. Right. And I think what's been clear is how we all need to be maybe a little bit more diligent about how we diversify from a nonprofit standpoint um, and, and look in that way a little bit more like for-profit businesses so that we don't expose ourselves. Now, I'm, I'm hoping no, no one listening to this, including you and I, will ever live through something this 
traumatic again. But I mean, I think it, it's just drawn more attention to what was always a fundamental shift that we needed to make, which was how do we make sure that we're a little bit more resilient in a number of different areas from a revenue standpoint? Because I've always said, if our organization isn't healthy, if, if we as a, as, a, as a business are not strong, and I would say this to any nonprofit, then your mission doesn't matter. Because if you don't have enough money to actually execute on your mission, you're no better off. I think refocusing ourselves on how strong our organizations are from a business standpoint really is something that we, we don't want to ever get too far away from. I think a lot of people are probably caught flat-footed. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think many nonprofits, businesses, small businesses can take away a lot of lessons from this experience that we're having, not just in revenue, but also in not leaning on, you know, one particular thing to get you through the year every single year. Like you yep. said, diversifying yep. your portfolio. Uh, if, if you don't take anything else away from what we're going through at this time and in our history, be diverse and be able to be lean and pivot for sure. And a lot of times that is what is taught to fund development folks is, is that there is, you know, several avenues for stream generation and not just from individual donors or even uh, grants, but also entrepreneurial type of activities yep. that yep. nonprofits can take part of. And, and nonprofits glean those types of ideas from the business sector. I think that there is absolutely a lot of positive things that could come from being a part of a chamber. And if you Google it, there's certainly lots of different lists that people can read. But from your perspective, how has your chamber been able to support nonprofits before this pandemic? If you want to talk about about that as well as yeah, sure. through this crazy time in our history. Yeah, so it's interesting. So I inherited a lot of our programming. You know, it's a it's a twelve months worth of programming. So I'm just now starting in on my second full year. We're not halfway through the year, but this is the second full year. And we've always had a program called Serve the Rock which was our nonprofit showcase. And we've got a minor league baseball stadium here and we would get 50 nonprofits out. We'd work with the young professional group to sort of co-host it. And we'd have two to 300 people show up one evening for networking and then to get to know all the nonprofits and walk around the tables and that sort of stuff. And, you know, it's, it's good, but I think it wasn't creating that stickiness that we really wanted. So this year, actually, we had planned for the fall, and we may still be doing this. This is still on the, you know, on the drawing table right now for us, what we're going to do. But we were actually going to take a page from Louisville and, and Mayor Fisher's Day of Service, and we were actually thinking about doing a you know weekend of Serve the Rock, where we would actually try to help our nonprofit members connect more closely with the volunteers and, and actually set up a, a portal for them to... Uh, post volunteer opportunities and, for, and we get the businesses to agree to have employee teams come out and be a part of the two days and we we're going to do a Thursday and a Friday and then we were going to do our event as the kickoff Thursday night mm -hmm. so you come last minute if there was you know you wanted a last minute to do something we got a lot of positive response from our nonprofits and I'm sort of heartbroken because it doesn't look like we're going to be able to do as much of that this year but we are we're going to try to do a component of that where we can get more volunteers and then you know i think you know this better than i do but the national data would show that people who volunteer are then more likely to, to be financial donors they're twice as yeah, likely so to, to donate to, to contribute right so part of what we're trying to do is is actually activate some of those connections to our nonprofit members um, 
so that they're getting both volunteers but then potentially future contributors. Um, and so I think we'll, we'll do a portion of that this year. I think we'll do it full blast next year. The other thing that we did, interestingly, in response to this was early on, um, we did a number of webinars, as everyone did, but we did a couple with SBA and um, the, our federal congressional delegation about the CARES Act and some of the some of the assistance that was available. But then we did one for nonprofits specifically, uh, for our nonprofit members. We did a special webinar about how to think about the PPP and where it could be useful and, and just little quirks that might be different if you're a nonprofit versus for-profit organization in terms of how you take advantage of it and you activate it. And, um, it's now up on our website and our webinar library, but we, we were trying to be mindful of the fact that while there was a lot of focus in the, in the early days around small business and restaurants and you know that that nonprofits in almost every way are indistinguishable from small business for-profit small business in terms mm -hmm. of what they're dealing with and, and how they were struggling um, and how they're still struggling and so we but we wanted to, to sort of honor that and so we had uh, a chamber member who has worked for some nonprofits and is now doing some some freelancing consulting to, you know provide some of that backdrop and then we also were able at that time, again, this is early in the early days of all this response, there was some specific uh, nonprofit assistance, particularly for organizations that were nonprofits that were focused on food insecurity or other uh, sort of connectivity things for, for people in poverty and, and resources that were critical at that time. There were special dollars that were available to keep those nonprofits going. And so we wanted to make sure that we highlighted those opportunities as well. So, you know, we've got a couple groups that are sort of disproportionately represented in our membership. Restaurants are one, nonprofits are one. And so we try to, as much as we can, identify products and services and events that, that would be you know, more or less interesting to them. You know, there is a trend right now, James, of it, well, in the nonprofit community uh, with virtual volunteers, and that'll be one of my upcoming episodes as to how nonprofits well, can engage with virtual volunteers. You know, we're, we're also looking at virtual, in our case, events, right? And I think what's becoming clear to me is we'll never go back to a world that doesn't have some measure of virtual, right? So even as we're able to re-engage in the ways that we, that we used to engage with people. This is a little aside. I don't know if, if you guys keep up with the national event industry and what they're saying about coming back, quote unquote, to events. What they say is that local events will be the first to come back, however that might look because it is a smaller group of people not traveling as far in same county, maybe not even allowing other counties to come in to, to the event. You know, it sounds like Little Rock is not quite ready even for those types of events to occur. Um, what they're saying is that those types of events might have to wait till the first quarter of 2021. I don't know yeah. uh, it, what your, your information is telling you yeah. in your surveys. So, I mean, we had a, uh, we had a meeting this morning with our with the events team trying to go through what the rest of the year looks like. And frankly, I've done what I think a, a good and responsible uh, person in my position should do, which is try to reforecast the year from a budget standpoint, um, basically without events. Um, yeah. And so basically seeding that portion of our, of our annual revenue, as I keep telling people, I'm like, I'm not, I don't want to keep postponing things. I don't want to be the guy who's like, Hey, get really excited about this thing. And then, Oh, by the way, it'll 
happen at some right. point in the future. I'd, I'd rather, frankly, I'd rather reallocate my resources towards new and virtual ways to connect our members and innovative ways to, to sort of continue to serve that than to sort of try this this Groundhog's Day thing of plan an event and then postpone it. So, right. you know, I mean, from my standpoint, we're looking at events. Um, everything that we're looking at has a, has a digital first plan. Everything that we're planning for is, is digital or virtual. And that means we've had to get rid of some stuff permanently um, for this year because it's just, it's not feasible to make it virtual. And then for the rest of it, I'm really struggling. How do we differentiate? Because there's so much fatigue right now on virtual and Zoom and logging onto a webinar and trying to find ways to make it a little bit more interactive. Brainstorming right now with our annual meeting. Our annual meetings are our largest revenue generator from an event standpoint. And that's normally in December. So part of what we're trying to think is if, if we can't get together in person, is it a thing where we, we sell tickets at a certain level and you know a company buys a bundle of 10 and we actually send lunch? Um, and so they're turning in virtually, but, but they're also getting food catered to the office. And then we send them like a little, little gift or something. Um, so they feel some measure of connection. It's not just sort of as cold as logging onto a Zoom and just looking at it. Continue to be a challenge. And I mean, we're basically at this point now planning for the rest of calendar year 2020 um, without an in-person event. Have you all talked about when your first in-person event might be? Is that <laughs> no, a TBD? <laughs> um, no, that's a TBD, right? I mean, I'm probably still a little bit burned from this most recent one that we had to push off. But I was, I was trying, I guess, the first time to be like the first event back. I think at this point now, I'd like to be like in the last quarter of events back. Yeah. Um, and maybe, maybe be a little bit more conservative just in terms of... so. I mean, frankly, this is, you know, hard for me because I'm, I'm a guy who tends to like to, you know, at least be in, have some measure of control. I'm honestly not sure what I'm waiting for, right? Like, I know people don't want to go to an event right now. It, you know, it's not totally clear to me. I mean, do we wait for a vaccine? Is it just that the numbers have to get to a certain level? Do the numbers have to get to a certain level and stay at that level? Do people just need another couple months of being frustrated? Like, I don't exactly know what tea leaves I'm looking to read. So. Right, right. I'm right there with you. So, you know, with our events yeah. that we cover for clients and whatnot, what are we waiting for? Well, we're waiting for a perceived safety to be right. amongst the, the right. attendees who come. So what does that perception look like? Well, that is when, when the tea leaves come in handy, if they were to ever right. work. You know, I don't think you're in this boat alone. It's not you and me. It's, it's a lot of people in the same, yep. in the same yep, storm. Right. It just might look a little different for everybody. Thank you for your transparency and all of that. Yeah, sure. James, this has been a wonderful uh, conversation. I, I do want to turn to what I call my one common question. Now, I know right. you, you don't consider your, your work to be what a nonprofit typically looks like, but you do have a lot of nonprofit tendencies. And so I want to ask you, sure. what is the one thing that you love the most about working in a C6 organization? Yeah, so I would say... Um, there's a mission element to everything that we do. And at the end of the day, our work has the opportunity to make people's lives better who will never know that we had anything to do with it, right? So this public school uh, transformation is a perfect example. Thousands and tens of thousands of students will, will benefit if we can get it right. And they'll never know my name. 
I, I kind of love that. I kind of love that that I can feel like when I get to go to work um, and have an impact on something, it's it's at scale, and it's not about me or individual recognition, but but the ability to to change something for a whole community. So we've talked about the love. What do you love less about it? You do feel in a chamber of commerce, unfortunately, like you get spread in a million different directions, um, being over stretched. Um, and to me, it feels like I don't quite get to do everything exactly to the level of finish or the level of like last mile detail that I really want to get it done. Um, cause I got to get it done and get it out the door cause something else is coming in. I love what I do and I love the variety of work and the pace and all that sort of stuff. So it's really, you know, I can't complain too much. What is your one favorite resource right now that this may sound obvious and, and perhaps I should have been taking advantage of it more. I've really enjoyed being able to chat with colleagues about this and that sort of, you know, one thing I love about the chamber world um, and our national organization, ACCE, people in the chamber world are, have a pretty good sense of humility. And so when I call up a, or, or I've gotten these phone calls, you know, how are you responding to this? How are, are you charging for your, for your virtual events? What are you doing here? How have you aligned there? People are so willing to have those conversations and and really not be worried about how it makes them look whether they feel like they have to pretend like they know everything or not i've really enjoyed being being able to, to lean on colleagues and then being a colleague that, that others call and sort of talk through some of these things outside of just sort of my own four walls here but in a totally abundance mentality right so this is not my sharing something with you could mean that i get less because you get more. I mean, that sort of scarcity mentality, I think, has has subsided a lot in these times. Um, and being able to lean on colleagues and, and peers and, and people who are in similar roles, I think has been a, a sort of great outcome to what is an otherwise really not great uh, environment for all of us. Always looking for the lemonade. I love it. Uh, with a rising tide, all ships will sail sort of mentality. That's right. Last question. What is uh, one thing that your chamber is doing to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion among businesses and members? Yeah, that's a great question. The, the short answer is not enough. Um, the, the slightly longer answer is we're trying to find new and creative ways um, to basically look at everything we're doing through that lens. What I'm trying to resist is creating programs or events or sort of one-off things that sort of check a box and rather every event that we do, every board that we have, you know, our supplier diversity, all that sort of stuff, trying to apply a more inclusive lens to that. We've really been pioneering some of this with the schoolwork that we're doing. We wanted that process to be intentionally inclusive and we started that two years ago. And so trying to take bits and pieces of that and spread it to other areas, you know, our probably best use is in our ability to, to create some of the um, structural and policy conversations and changes. So thinking about urban planning and the, the impact that urban planning has on injustice and inequity in our community and in all communities. Um, it's work that I that I was first exposed to through Leadership Louisville and the Bingham Fellows work that we mm-hmm. did in, in the West End of Louisville. You know, I, I think it's a little bit still in the works. I don't think any of us are moving fast enough in this space, but I do sense a moment to be able to sort of push some of this work forward 
were in a more the deep south than I was in, in Louisville. And so the dynamics slightly different um, culturally. And then obviously the legacy of, of 1957 and the integration of Little Rock Central High School is, is still very real here and very palpable here. Um, and so in some ways that's, it's good because we got that direct connection in the past, but it's also about sort of how do we move forward. And so I think there's, uh, that's one of the things that actually, frankly, I'm most excited to be working on. Not that I'm excited we have this opportunity because of uh, what happened to George Floyd. And obviously that's not the way you want to enter these conversations. It would be great if we all could have gotten here without that that need. But I do think that the groundswell and the change culturally in this community um, and this country has reduced some of those, what I would call like the early, you know, there, there were things that people would do that would early cut off, that, that would cut these, these conversations off early, nip them in the bud. And people are not doing that right now, which is allowing these conversations to go deeper and further. And so I think it's up to those of us who have been working on this and who care deeply about this to take that opening and really make sure that that door never closes again. It's just a function of how quickly we can move the ball down the field because we've got a long way to go and, and the, the stakes are very high. James, sure. this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today on Small Shop Fundraising. Thanks for listening.